0: You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6.30 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. Good evening, church. All right, if you guys want to go ahead and open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 5, we're going to be looking at verses 20 and 21. And if you're already there, you know what that means. We are finishing our study of 1 John this evening, right? This is going to be a good time. We have spent, I went back and looked at it, we have spent eight months and some change in this short letter, and that's not counting the, uh, the two months' worth of breaks that we took to, to go over the five solas and to celebrate Advent. So we have legitimately spent, my math isn't good, like 35 weeks in a five-chapter book, right? So God bless you guys for being patient. I see some of you guys out there nodding, saying, yeah, it's about time to be over with, and you guys are not funny. Um, so yeah, yeah, so eight months and some change in this short letter from John, and I, it has been awesome. I haven't, I've never went this deep in a book before, it has been awesome. Uh, but next week we're going to be starting a series in the book of Psalms. 150 weeks in the Psalms, ladies and gentlemen, we're about to do it. Some of you don't think that's funny, that's a joke. We're going to spend 17 weeks in the Psalms, don't worry about that, I don't think I could do three, three years in the Psalms, but we might do three years in the Gospel of John here soon. Anyhow, uh, that's neither here nor there, uh, but we are... Finishing up this this little letter that John wrote to the church in Asia Minor. But a question to begin this sermon How often do you dwell on Christ? How often do you dwell on Christ? Just sit and think on him. How often do you consider who he is, his person? How often do you consider what he has done, his work? what he's done to save sinners how often do you sit and just contemplate the grace of Jesus Christ toward you a sinner contemplate the fact that he is god that he is god incarnate god in the flesh how often do you really sit down and consider the person and work of Jesus Christ i am thoroughly convinced that i don't do it as much as i should right and i know that because i know how i live I sin all the time. And I know I'm not the only one in here that sins. Even Christians, we sin on a daily basis. But I think that there's a strong correlation between standing amazed by who the Lord Jesus Christ is and considering who He is deeply in our hearts and how we live. There's a direct correlation on how we view Christ and how we honor Him in our lives. So I know that I'm, I'm almost positive I'm not the only one here who would agree that we don't consider Christ as much as we should. So my goal this evening is to remind us all of the supremacy of Christ. To show that Christ is all. You're going to hear that phrase a lot here in a little bit. Christ is all. That he is the center of everything in the universe. That he is everything to us, Christian. Right? If, you're, if you're here and you're not a believer, you've not repented of your sins, you're not following the Lord Jesus Christ daily in faith and repentance, Christ means nothing to you. Right, Just practically, he means nothing to you. He's just a, a story. Right? He may have been a, a person, but he's nothing to you really. But to the believer, I want to press to you. He is everything to us. And likewise, if you're an unbeliever, I want to I press on you. Christ is supreme. He's everything. You need to acknowledge his lordship, repent, and trust in him. But in showing you guys, as I'm going to attempt as a weak preacher... Showing you guys that Christ is all. I hope to fan the flame in your hearts toward Christ. Right, to, to stoke that flame. So my prayer this evening is that we would get a glimpse, just behind the veil, just a little glimpse of who Jesus is and his great grace toward us as believers. That, that we would find him to be more precious to us than we did an hour ago. That's my great goal this evening. And then, as in doing that, by seeing Christ as he is, that we would cling even more tightly to him and forsake anything that would, attempt us to, to, uh, uh, that would tempt us to forsake him. To go another way. To let something threaten his place and position in our lives as Lord. So, here's my thesis for this evening. Here's the big point that we're driving at. If you're a note taker, go for it. Christ is all he is supreme and if we set our eyes on him we will keep from all forms of idolatry so that being said let's go ahead and look at first john chapter 5 verses 20 and 21 and we know that the son of god has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true And we are in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we humble ourselves before you and before your word as ignorant people who need instruction, as sinners who need forgiveness. We also humble ourselves before you, the believers here, as your people who want to know you more, who want to see your Son. So, God, I pray that you would send your Holy Spirit upon us this evening, that we might see, that you would give us a fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit, that we might see Christ rightly, and that we might forsake all idols. And, Lord, we beg that you do something this evening, because if you do not work a work of sovereign grace, then this is all for nothing. Please, Holy Spirit, work alongside the Word of God to make the people of God like the Son of God. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so as John ends this letter, we said these these final two verses, this is John ending the letter. And he wants to encourage his readers at the end. That's what he's been doing in this last last few paragraphs. And he does this by making a series of statements uh, that we can be confident in. If you read, there's three statements of we know, we know, we know. And his final statement of confidence for us, his reader, is this, or it begins with this. And we know that the Son of God has come. Right? So we know that Jesus Christ has come into the world, is what he's referencing. We know that the Son of God has come. So what John is doing is he's hitting the fundamental truth that the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, has taken on flesh and come into the world. So the Son of God took on humanity and came to earth. John is saying that we know that as an absolute Fact And what John's doing here is he's hammering home the point that Jesus is truly God and truly man. Right? We know that the Son of God, the Divine One, has come, taken on flesh. That's what he's aiming at. And just a little bit of background. The reason why John's hammering that at the end of this letter is because, as we've talked about many times in the last eight months, uh, the heretics that John writes against were denying that Jesus Christ had actually come in the flesh. They were committing a heresy called docetism. There's your $5 word of the day. Um, And docetism basically taught that Jesus only appeared to be human But that the Son of God had not actually taken on flesh and become a human being And John is saying, no, no, no Opposed to that heresy, that nonsense We know that the Son of God has actually taken on flesh and come into the world Right. So opposed to that, we know this He's taken on humanity and has come And we know why he did it We know why Jesus took on flesh And came into the world. And I think that this is implied every time that John talks about Christ's humanity. What's implied is the reason why Jesus Christ took on humanity. But we know the answer. We know that the Son of God came into the world to redeem a people for himself. That's what we know. For his glory that he might save his people from their sins. Or just like the angel told Joseph, You shall name him Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And we know that the Lord Jesus Christ came to live for his people, obeying all of the law of God in place of his elect, and to die for his people, suffering the wrath of God for them, and to be resurrected for his people, so that they too might be raised from the dead and walk in newness of life. And he did all of this, living, dying, being raised from the dead for his people, all in order to accomplish the salvation of his people. This is what we know. Jesus Christ came into the world to do an act of redemption. And the reason why John wants to hammer this at the end is because we know that if Jesus did not take on humanity and did not come into the world, that he did not save anyone. That's what we know. That's why John is hammering this so hard. If Christ did not take on human flesh, then he did not redeem human beings. Right, so this truth that Christ has actually come, the Son of God has actually come, is so precious to us. Fully taking on humanity, the humility of God to come and live and die for sinners that they might be saved. The Son of God has come. Now I want to encourage you with this. Right, so there is some application. I understand that there's not a whole lot of docetists in Scioto County. I've looked. Right, There's not a whole lot of these heretics running around saying that Jesus hasn't actually come in the flesh. But, but I want to encourage you with this because there is some, some application for today. Back then, what they were saying, if I could boil it down, is that the Son of God had not come. That's what they were saying in a nutshell, is that the Son of God had not come. And people today say the same thing, right? So there, there actually is modern-day application for this. People have always denied God's truth, by the way. So like, don't ever be shocked whenever sinners act like sinners and unbelievers act like unbelievers. That's what they're going to do. They've done it since the beginning, Right? But what, the, the two things that we hear often whenever people deny that the Son of God has come into the world, at first is you hear that Jesus Christ is a myth. Anyone ever heard that one? Yeah, that's dumb. Um, even like atheist scholars will tell you that that's a bunch of nonsense. Right? So we know that Jesus of Nazareth actually existed, but what people will say is that Jesus was a myth. That he didn't exist, that the Christians made him up for one reason or another. That's not that common, but you will hear that sometime in denial that the Son of God has come into the world because the Son of God doesn't exist. And then you'll hear this other one, this is much more common, is that Jesus of Nazareth, or Jesus bar Joseph, was just a man. That Jesus was just a man, that he was not divine. All right, so again, the Son of God has not come into the world. That's what you'll hear. Those are the two big objections. He was a myth or that he was just a man. But I want you to say, and what I want to encourage you to do is to say along with John that we know that the Son of God has come. That the, that the Divine One has taken on flesh and come into the world. What I'm getting at, I know I keep going in the same circle, I want you to know this as a historical fact. This actually happened. Well, let me encourage you with this. John chapter 1, verse, 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands. He goes on to say, Him we proclaim to you. This is what John is saying. He's talking about the Son of God. John's telling us earlier in the book, and he's ending on this same note, I saw Him. I talked with him, I touched him, I heard him teach, I saw the Son of God with my own eyes. I lived with him, I saw him do miracles, I saw him crucified, dead, and buried, and I saw him raised from the grave, and I saw him ascend to heaven. This is a fact. We know that the Son of God has come. We have an eyewitness testimony from an apostle who was there, John. He says, "This is fact, is what he's saying. We know this. With utter confidence, the Son of God has come." But sometimes I fear that we view the Bible as a collection of stories. Anyone ever prone to that? That like the Bible is like a book of doctrines to be mastered and a bunch of stories to be memorized, but we don't view it as a history of events. I fear that we do that sometimes. It's a book of stories and not a history of events. Don't view the scriptures that way. The Son of God has actually come. That's what John's nailing down to us. The Son of God has come. He's reminding us of what we know. And we know that Christ has come into human history and taken on flesh in order to save his people. And let me boil that down to one last thing. All of human history points to this one point in time. We know that the Son of God has come. All human history before then was pointing to to there. Now we look back to him and we look forward to the time when the Son of God will return. What he's saying is we know that Christ has come. We know that everything that's the focal point is the Son of God coming into the world. At that point in time Christ is the center of it and we know that he has done it. That he has come and saved his people. But not only has Christ come. John says that he's done more than that. Christ has come. Going on in the verse. And has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. Oh, that's, that's sweet. Like, like, hear that again. The Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. He has given us understanding so that we might know God. God is who John's referencing. He, he, he who is true is God. And the us here, given us understanding, is the believer. So what John is saying is that Jesus, by the Spirit of God, has opened our minds to see the truth. To see the truth about who Jesus is. To see the truth about what Jesus has done for our salvation. And he has done this, Christ has given us understanding, so that we might know God. And whenever John says, know God, he doesn't mean to know God Um, just intellectually, or to have a bunch of head knowledge about God, but to know God experientially, to know God as Father, to be reconciled to Him, to know Him intimately, to have fellowship with the Father, to have peace with Him, to abide in Him and have Him abide in us, to know God relationally and experientially. The Son of God has come and given us understanding so that we might have that kind of relationship with the Father. Now let me tease something out about this. I love doing stuff like this. Jesus is the active in this sentence, okay? The Son of God has come. Jesus has come, and he has given understanding. Jesus Christ is the active, and we are the passive here, right? So, Jesus gave understanding, which means he gave us the ability and capacity to know God, which means this. If He gave us the ability to know God, and He gave us the capacity to know God, that means that prior to Jesus giving this to us, we lacked the ability to know God. We couldn't know Him. Mired down in our sin, in our obstinate rebellion against God, we had no heart towards God until Christ gave us understanding. Matthew 11:27 The Lord Jesus himself says, "All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him." That's heavy. It says, "No one knows the Father unless I show him to you." Is what Jesus says. So we are only in right relationship with God. We are only in communion with God because of the grace of Christ. And I know some of my theology nerds are in here saying, but what about the Holy Spirit doing the work of regeneration, right? Bringing us from death to life, giving us eyes to see. I understand that our salvation is a Trinitarian work of God, but here John is focusing on Jesus. Jesus Christ sends the Spirit of God upon the elect so that we might be born again. Okay, so if that just helps you out a little bit. But it is only because of the grace of Christ that we know God. Is what John's aiming at here. Let me, let me say it again. It is only by the grace of Christ that you know God. Oh, that we would be astounded by grace. I know we hear it a lot. You did not have the capacity to know God. You wanted nothing to do with him until Jesus Christ gave you understanding. He revealed the Father to us. He did not have to. And furthermore, he does not reveal the Father to all. He says, the, only one, the ones I choose to reveal him to. We did not deserve this. We are sinners. We deserve the condemnation of Jesus Christ. We deserve what John calls the wrath of the Lamb. We were ignorant and blind, but Christ gave us, the believer, understanding and sight, all purely by grace. Jesus Christ has come to save a people and has given them understanding so that they would truly know God. And if you're a believer, that's happened to you. So Jesus has done all of this work so that we would know God. He has come. He has given us understanding. And let me tell you this, something about Jesus, uh, he's really good at his job. Right? like He's not like some of you guys. I've talked to your bosses and stuff. Um, but Jesus always does a good job. He doesn't fail, is what I'm getting at. Because here's what John goes on to say. So Jesus has done all this stuff. He's given us understanding, come into the world to purchase a people for himself so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true. In Jesus Christ, his son. This is the result of the work of Christ. It's effective, It's effective. He does his job well. So in light of that, John affirms to the believer that we indeed know God. We indeed know God. We are actually in a right relationship with the God that we were once alienated from. We were made into the children of God. And this is all because of his son, Jesus Christ. We know God through faith alone in Christ alone. And what John and Jesus labor throughout the gospel of John to say is that if you know the son, you know the father. And if you don't know the son, you don't know the father. That's John's point here. Because we are in his son, because we have come to faith in Christ, we are now in the father. Since we have come to trust in the Jesus that John and the apostles have preached to us, we know with absolute certainty that we are in right relationship with God. And I love this this we know thing means that there is absolutely no question about it. This is a certainty for everyone who is trusted in Christ. And again, I'll keep boiling it down to its simplest points. What John is saying is Jesus Christ is the whole reason that we know God. Because of His person, because of who He is, taking on humanity So that he might redeem human beings. And because of his work, his living, dying, and being raised from the dead in place of his people, because of his grace toward us, enlightening our minds that we might see God and know God through Christ. It's all because of Jesus that we know God. It's all because of Jesus that we have the forgiveness of sins. It's all because of Jesus that we have hope for eternal life. It's because of Him, not because of us, not because of our good works, not because of our obedience, not because we are so smart to choose God, not our anything, but because of Christ alone. That's what John is hammering home for us, because of Christ. What John is doing, and I'm trying to do, (laughs) is exalt Christ. We know all these things about Him. See Him. See the Lord Jesus for who he is. See what he's done. He's supreme. We ought not be able to think about Christ without being overwhelmed. And then John puts the exclamation point on the end of this. He says he is the true God and eternal life. He, referring back to Jesus Christ, is the true God and eternal life. He's driving us to see His supremacy. He's driving us to see the necessity of Jesus Christ. That Christ is all. That Christ is everything. That He is the center of everything. The focus of everything. He says Jesus Christ is the eternal life. He is the source of life. The forgiveness of sins is only found in Him. Apart from Him, there is only death. He's telling us that He is the eternal life, that our reconciliation to God consists of Christ. I love that. It's not just about what Christ has done, but He Himself is eternal life, which means our reconciliation is Christ. Not just what He has done, but He Himself is our eternal life. Our knowledge of God is due to Him. Our peace is in Him. And apart from Him, there is no life, both now and in the life to come. Outside of Christ is only wrath and condemnation from God for our sins. He is the eternal life. He is our only hope. Everything else that we might look to is futile because it does not have eternal life. He alone is eternal life. Christ alone. This is part of his supremacy, and John just hits the nail on the head, and he is the true God. Jesus is the true God. Now, I don't have time to get into the mystery that is the Holy Trinity, but you can feel free to ask some questions after church is over. I'll say this. Jesus is distinct in personhood from the Father. He's not saying that Jesus, the Son, is also the Father. That's not what he's saying here. He's saying Jesus Christ is truly divine. Jesus Christ is God. He has the divine essence. He is truly God. And I know that that's basic, right? I, I would assume the majority, vast majority of people in this room will affirm that Jesus Christ is God, right? I say it enough that you would be hyper allergic to this if you were here this long, right? But and I know that that's basic, and I'm sure a lot of you are thinking, I know that Jesus is God already. So what? I get that. I check that off the list of the doctrines that I believe But I beg you to think on that for a minute. I was just talking to Steve downstairs before we came up here. Let that sink in and hit you. Like how profound of a statement is that? Jesus is God. Jesus Christ is God. He is the creator. All things were created through him and not anything that was created was created apart from him. He is the creator. He is the sovereign ruler of the universe. He tells us, all authority has been given to me by my Father. This universe is mine. That's the Lord Jesus. The sovereign ruler, the creator. All things have been put in subjection under Him. The earth is His footstool. He owns all things. He is the all powerful, all-knowing One. He is eternal. He has no beginning. He has no end. He is the judge of all mankind. He is the only true God. We kneel in our hearts before this God and declare Jesus Christ is Lord. He is the true God. And because of who He is, not counting what he's done on our behalf, but purely because of who he is, we owe him everything. We owe him our everything. He is God. We owe him our whole life, our money, our resources, our time, our friendships, jobs, families, hobbies, everything that we have belongs to him because we belong to him. He is God. Everything is subjected to Him. There is nothing that we can hold back from Him. There is nothing that He cannot ask of us. He is God. He is the center of everything. Christ is all. Let me ask you this. Is this your view of Christ? Is this your view of Christ? Is this your heart toward Him? He is the true God in eternal life. He is supreme. He is everything. If not, I beg you to take another look at Him. If you don't see Him this way, get on your face before God and ask for sight that you might see. Because if you don't see this Christ, if you don't behold this Christ, you will die in your sins. But I beg you, take another look at him and behold him in his glory and see the true God and eternal life. So let's sum up verse 20. Jesus is the center. Jesus is the center of all things. He has come and redeemed a people. He has given us, the believer, understanding to know God. Through faith in him, we know God. He himself is the true God and eternal life. He is everything. And in light of that, we come to verse 21. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. And here, John, little children, he's saying, My dear ones, my beloved ones, I love you guys. In light of what I've just said about the Lord Jesus Christ, keep yourself from idols. Since Christ is the center of everything. Since Christ is all that matters. Since through Him you have come to know the truth. Since through Him you are saved. Since He is God. Accept no substitutes. That's what John is saying to us. In his immediate context, what he's saying is keep away from false Christs. Remember the heretics in his day were preaching a different Jesus. So in the immediate context, John is saying keep away from false Christs. Do not trust in any other Jesus other than the one that John and the apostles have proclaimed. Do not trust in a Jesus who is not truly God and truly man. Do not trust in a moral teacher, Jesus, who was pretty much a hippie who said a lot of good things. Don't trust in that Jesus. Likewise, don't trust in the Jesus who is only God and cannot sympathize with human beings. No, we only trust in the Christ who is truly God and truly man. He's also telling us, do not trust in a Jesus whose death did not make atonement. Do not trust in a Jesus who did not take the wrath of God in your place. He's also telling us, do not trust a Jesus that has no wrath. And let me hit that in a day and age where all we see is soft church and people neglecting the scriptures. A, all we hear most of the time is a wrathless Jesus who does not care whether or not you come to faith in Him. I'm sure you guys heard what the Pope was saying, that the atheist father uh, is, might be in heaven or whatever. You guys see all that stuff? No. That's not the Christ that John preached. John preached a Christ who has wrath for the unbeliever. So don't believe in a Jesus who has no wrath Don't believe in a Jesus who does not demand anything. Do not believe in a Jesus who is not holy. Do not believe in a Jesus who does not demand his people to be holy. But also, do not believe in a a Jesus who has no grace. Do not believe in a Jesus who has no mercy. Do not believe in a Jesus who does not take pity on the repentant sinner. Because Jesus Christ is all of those things. Except no false Christ. Why? Because every other Christ is a false God that cannot save. It's an idol. If you go back and read the Old Testament, idols are called dead things and they're worthless. And the psalmist says, and those who trust in them will become like them. Worthless, dead keep from a false Christ but we can also broaden this command to keep from idolatry we can broaden it out to say this right so keep from idols we could definitely tell people who don't know Christ that we can definitely tell ourselves to keep away from a false Christ but more broadly we can we can put it this way John is telling us to keep away from anything any pleasure any sin that would compete for our attention affection and obedience to the Lord Jesus because that's what an idol does It attempts to draw us away from the Lord Jesus. That's what an idol is. A false god. Something that would vie for our attention. Why? Because all of those things will do us no eternal good. An idol will only lead you to death. So let me ask this question to you. Do you have any idols in your life? And I'm not just talking to people that aren't Christians talking to Christians here. Do you have any idols in your life? I hope not. I really do. I hope not. But I would argue that most of us have at least something in our lives that creeps up and threatens to dethrone Christ from his rightful place in our hearts. There's something and it creeps. So search your heart. Let me ask you some questions. I want you to evaluate yourself. Think on these things. What brings you the most joy? What brings you the most joy? Where do your thoughts constantly drift to? What do you spend your time on? What do you spend your money on? What is your great goal in life? What is your great goal in life? Where do you find peace, hope, and comfort? If Christ is not at the core of your answers, then beware of an idol. Because it will destroy you. Do not play with an idol. It's like a wild animal. You turn your back on it. It will get you. Don't toy with an idol. But the question then that I want to ask is, how am I supposed to keep myself from idols? Got you, John, right? You gave me a command. Didn't exactly tell me how to do it, at least not explicitly. How am I supposed to keep myself from idols, right? I would imagine we want to know the answer to that. And I think that the answer is actually implied in verse 20, right? And what I mean is this. John has just given us the big picture of who Christ is and what Christ has done. And then he tells us to keep away from idols. What is John implying here? That the answer for how we keep away from idolatry is to look to Christ, To look to him, to focus our attention on him, to constantly be reminding ourselves of who he is, to remember the true Christ, to reflect on the truth of Christ, his great love for you, Christian, the fact that he is the true God, the fact that he has all rights over you. You are not your own, you have been bought with a price. To reflect on that, to reflect on His holiness, and that we might be holy as He is holy. To reflect on His grace toward us, to think on who He is. That is the answer to how we keep from idolatry. Let me take you to one other text to show you this. Hebrews 12, chapter 1 or, uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and the beginning of verse 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Right. So the author of Hebrews is saying that if we are to live our lives faithfully to Christ then we must cast off all weight and sin that would keep us from Him. And idolatry is most certainly one of them. And how do we cast off every weight and sin that would keep us from Christ? By looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. By looking to Jesus Christ. Focusing the eyes of our hearts on Him alone. And I know what you're thinking, because you're thinking the stuff that I used to think, probably. That sounds like a bunch of fluffy nonsense, Right? Like, that doesn't sound very practical, right? You're telling me, look to Jesus and watch your idols fall. Like, that sounds great, but that also sounds like one of those Toby Matt quotes people put on Facebook all the time that are terrible. You know what I'm talking about? They're awful. Speak life or whatever it is. Don't, don't get on there. It's bad. Um, I'm not saying he's not saved. I'm just saying, hmm. It's um, probably what you're thinking. Like, this sounds like a bunch of fluffy stuff, right? Look to Jesus and watch your idols fall. It sounds great, but it can't work. Hear me on this. Hear me out. To drive sin and idolatry from our hearts, it has to be replaced with something stronger. To drive one affection out, another one has to take its place. Right? Someone smokes all the time. This This is a trivial analogy. Someone smokes, they want to quit smoking right? But they really, really love to smoke, right? I understand what it's like to love tobacco. It's delicious sometimes. Kids, don't do that. That was stupid. I shouldn't have said that. I apologize, parents. <laughs> um, I forgot they're up here. That's, that's really dumb. Um, <laughs> but the only thing that's going to drive the desire to smoke or something like that out of your heart is a greater desire, like, I don't want to die. You see what I'm saying? If you want to replace something, something stronger has to come in and take its spot. Or you're going to revert back to the thing that you initially desired. Something stronger has to replace the idolatry in our heart. That's what I'm getting at. Something stronger has to replace it. And Christ himself is what will drive idolatry out of us. Only the true God can drive a false God out of our hearts. That's what John's saying. So as we close, let me leave you with this. I've said it a lot. I'm going to say it again. Christ is all. He is supreme. He is eternal life. He has brought us out of condemnation and into fellowship with God. He is the only thing that matters. It is Him alone that we trust, forsaking all others. We keep our eyes on Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word, for the truth that you've given to us, that there is hope for sinners in Christ alone, that there is hope for us believers who struggle with all of these things, keeping uh, or vying for our attention. And we fail, Lord. We slip into idolatry and don't even realize it sometimes, but I thank you for the truth that if we repent, you forgive, that Christ has borne our condemnation, that Christ has come into the world to save a people, and that Christ can drive an idol from our hearts. Lord God, I pray that you would let us see your son. Let us see him more deeply than we've seen him before. And let our affection be for him and for no one else. Seal us, Lord, in your grace. In Christ's name, amen.